Lord, you are so good to us beyond what we deserve. And we worship you as we have just sung as a holy God. You are holy and perfect. There is no one like you. There is no one beside you. And all must rightly fall down in worship and reverence before you. And so we pray that that is what would happen here this afternoon. As we look into your holy word, may we fall down before you to listen and hear and learn and be changed by what you have in store for us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Following instructions isn't always easy. Our generation grew up in the prime era of two internet things that I believe go hand in hand, the DIY tutorial and the failure blog. And there's no shortage of humor online when these two things intersect. People documenting their failures, showing um, how they failed to follow recipes or to make crafts or to build things or to repair things. And usually the horrendous results are because of failure to follow clear directions. Sometimes even knowingly, but often with the best intent. Let me give you an example. I saw a video just this week of a Canadian morning show where one of the hosts was lamenting the failure of her beloved artichoke dip at her family's holiday party. She even brought in the remainder of the dish to subject her three co-hosts to the abomination. And only after she has made them try it, they're forced to have a taste, and they're gagging and spitting with tears in their eyes from the apparent acidity and vinegary taste, does she actually explain to them that, number one, there's no vinegar in the dish, and number two, she hadn't had all the ingredients at home, so she took the liberty to make some substitutions. Namely, she had subbed in orange juice for lemon juice, because they're similar, right? Both citrus fruits... Well, apparently lemon juice is a preservative, but the sugars in orange juice contribute to quicker spoilage and fermentation. So her family and now her co-hosts got to experience her new recipe for rotten artichokes. We can have the best intent. We can even have the best recipe right in front of us, the best guide. But if we don't follow it, it leads to problems. Today we'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6. The whole chapter. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, please turn to 2 Samuel 6. And we'll do something a little different today. Since it's a longer passage, we won't read the whole thing out the outset. Okay, we'll uncover the verses as we go in three chunks. But just to introduce what is going to happen if your eyes are gazing over the passage right now. In this text, we see a huge worship gathering. And it's truly an event. It's a festival. There's a giant crowd, there's music, there's shouting, there's dancing, there's sacrifices, there's free food, and let's be honest, that's what makes it a party. And at the center of it all is this big parade, a processional, and the joyous celebration surrounds it. But actually, this party happens twice. All right, twice King David starts this parade, and twice the rejoicing ends with a negative event. The first time by a man's death, and the second time by a woman's derision. But these two occasions are actually quite opposite. In the first one, David thinks he's doing quite well, but he really isn't. And in the second one, he's accused of not doing well, but he really is. Both stories will raise questions about what it actually means to worship God. In this chapter, we'll see what it means to worship rightly. And we'll see this in three parts, three things a true worshiper must seek Three things we must seek, three desires that will orient our worship rightly. So the first thing that a true worshiper must seek is God's presence. 
God's presence. We must want more of him. We must delight in him and experience his nearness. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now remember, at this point, the nation of Israel is experiencing a new beginning. Only a few chapters ago, David was made king over a reunified people. And already this reunified nation has been experiencing a time of great success. God has given them Jerusalem as David's capital, fulfilling his promises in in the conquest of the promised land of Canaan. And God has miraculously defeated the Philistines before them twice, providing victory and peace. God is with his people, and they're experiencing this great new start. That's where we're at. Today's chapter opens with David gathering together 30,000 chosen men, the choice young warriors from all across Israel, and he brings them together, a united nationwide effort with a singular mission, not war, not armed conflict, but to go and retrieve and relocate the Ark of the Covenant. Of course, we need to stop here in case you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenants. The word Ark is really an outdated English word with two equally outdated definitions. The funny thing is nobody today, whether they're Christian or not, really uses the word Ark unless they're talking about one very particular boat or one very particular box. You all know Noah's Ark, the boats, which you remember from the worldwide flood. And then there's the Ark of the Covenant, the box, which I know you all remember from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, Indiana Jones actually got the appearance of the Ark pretty well in the movie, if you go back and watch a clip. Everything else, not so much. You know, the Nazi face melting and the head exploding stuff. That was pure fiction. But the Ark itself was pretty accurate because Steven Spielberg actually had the blueprints from God. Exodus 25. The same thing that we can go and read that was given to Moses, the blueprints given to his people on Mount Sinai. You see, the ark is about 45 inches long, 27 inches deep, and 27 inches high, made of wood, but coated inside and outside completely with gold. The legs had gold rings on them in order to hold two wooden poles also coated with gold designed to be carried on the shoulders of men. The box itself contained a few things, but most importantly, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law that God gave to Moses. But more importantly than the box and its contents was the lid. Now, this is the opposite of what you think of when you're opening a package or a birthday present or a Tupperware full of leftovers. Usually it's what's inside the box that matters the most. But this was no ordinary lid. The lid was special. It was a thing of its own. It even had its own name. It was called the mercy seat. You see, the lid of the box, the mercy seat, was not gold-plated wood like everything else. It was solid gold. With two solid gold cherubim, or angels, sculpted on either side of the lid, with their wings outstretched over the middle, over the top of the box. God's description was very precise, because this mercy seat would be the throne of God. He himself, look back at verse 2, sits enthroned on the cherubim. 
God spoke to Moses from this mercy seat. Numbers 789 says that in the tabernacle, Moses would hear the very voice of God speaking to him audibly from above the mercy seat on the ark, from between the cherubim. Now, the ark itself was kept in the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, what is called the most holy place behind a curtain. It was the most exclusive part of the whole tabernacle. And only the VIP of VIPs, the high priest, could go in there. And not even freely, but only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would go in to sprinkle blood from the sin offering onto the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. This mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, was God's earthly dwelling place. It was a place of his special presence with his people in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the temple. That's what the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes, the presence of God himself. To seek the Ark means to seek the presence of God. If you haven't been with us for over a year and a half, um, we were in 1 Samuel a while back. And in 1 Samuel, in chapters 4 through 7, we kind of saw how God's presence with the Ark was even used at that point wrongly to the point of superstition. After losing a battle to the Philistines, the army of Israel summons out the ark like some good luck charm saying, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. But what happens? Even with the ark, the presence of the Lord out there on the battlefield with them, they lose again. And they lose seven times more casualties than the first time. Not only that, the ark in that battle gets captured by the Philistines and taken away. Over in the Philistine territory, though, the ark wreaks havoc. God shows his power over their false god Dagon, toppling the idol, right, and cutting off its head and its hands. Then God afflicts the Philistines with deadly plagues of tumors and mice. His hand is heavy upon them for seven months. And so the Philistines decide to take advantage of the return policy And they consult their priests, the priests of their false god, and their mystics who tell them to send back the ark on a brand new cart led by two brand new unused cows without anyone driving them to see where it would go. And the cows, of course, beeline straight back to Israel. We last see the ark in 1 Samuel 7. The men of Israel have brought the ark into the house of Abinadab on the hill. Now we're a whole book later, 2 Samuel 6, and David now seeks this ark. In fact, there's a parallel passage to our text today in 1 Chronicles. We won't turn there, but I'll explain to you what he says there. What he says to the people is, let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. You see, from the time the ark has arrived at Abinadab's house on the hill, 70 years have passed, almost 70, probably 67. And Samuel has grown old and died. Saul was chosen, anointed, reigned, and died all without consulting the ark. And now David has been chosen, anointed, and has finally become king over Israel. And now he remembers the ark. Where is it? He realizes that for the entire reign of Saul, this most important thing, this most significant component of Israel's worship has been neglected and ignored for decades. But David is a man after God's own heart. David remembers what Saul had forgotten. So part of David's fresh start here of reuniting Israel is also to reunite Israel's worship around the centerpiece 
of God, the Ark of the Covenant, bring the Ark into their new capital, David's new city of Jerusalem. That is, they want to bring the nation's spiritual centerpiece into the civic center. They want to bring the seat of Israel's God into the seat of Israel's government. They want to bring God's throne into Israel's new throne room. Now, when it comes to God's presence, let's not get too technical about this, okay? We know that God is everywhere. David knows that too. He's the one who wrote Psalm 139, which is about the omnipresence of God. He cannot flee from God's presence. Wherever he goes, God is there. Neither is David being superstitious like Israel was back in that battle. He wasn't trying to invoke God's presence by bringing it down to the field. What he understands, though, is that the ark, verse 2, is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. The name the Lord of hosts is a name of God that was actually coined in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and is a name of God that has been used throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, the Lord of hosts. And this name particularly refers to the idea that God is the ruler, the true king with true authority over all dominions. He has angelic armies at his disposal. The host of angels and the host of heaven are all under his command. And it is also translated God Almighty. It's about his power, his rule, his reign, sovereign over all. And David, having become king over Israel, first says, no, God is the true king. Let's bring the ark around. Let's bring and call upon the Lord of hosts, the powerful one, Yahweh. And so he seeks the Lord. He seeks the ark. He gathers his 30,000 and they set out for Abinadab's house with pomp and pageantry and festival, to lead a grand parade, a victory march, to bring the ark, the place of God's presence, the symbol of God's power, home to Jerusalem. Now we need to ask ourselves this question. Do we actively and firstly seek the Lord, his presence, and his power in our lives? Or do we try like Saul to live the entirety of our lives without him. So often I'm going through a stressful day myself, and I don't even realize until after the fact that I hadn't even thought about stopping to pray. And it crossed my mind to bring it to the Lord and seek his will. I can go through the greater part of a day, sometimes a greater part of a week, just on autopilot, looking to my own experience, my own strategy, my own wiles, my own discipline to get me through. But to seek the Lord first is of utmost importance. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do you remember the context of that verse? It's anxiety. The whole passage is about how we are not to be anxious about life or food or drink or clothing. Don't worry about money, about inflation, about the cost of gas and groceries. God knows what you need. And he cares for you, and he is a God who provides. And then the very antidote to anxiety is given by Jesus, and it is this, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his rule. Seek first his authority. Seek first the Lord of hosts, and then you won't be anxious about tomorrow. That's the context. What about us as a church is our worship about desiring and seeking God together? You know, at Zoe, there's a lot of things we're kind of proud of not being, right? We're not fancy. We're not slick or attractive. We don't sing the most popular songs. We kind of consider that one of our strengths. 
We like it that way. But it's not enough to just not be those things. Because what's important is what we are. The question is, are we filled with awe at God's presence? Do we yearn for his nearness? Another thing we're not is charismatic. But do we actually desire to encounter God in our worship and be moved by his spirit in a way that changes us? Listen, do we scoff at a song that goes, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here? Yes, we do. Because we know that doctrinally, truly, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to be welcomed anywhere because he is everywhere. And he's especially already indwelling our hearts as believers. We might biblically justify never saying, singing that song. But then do we turn around and close our heart to the work of the Spirit and what he's wanting to do with us, to convict us of, to change in us. Zoe, maybe we do need to welcome God's presence and seek him more. If we aren't filled with awe at God's presence, wanting his nearness and desiring his work in our lives, then it doesn't matter if Zoe is not all the things we don't want to be. We need to be the things we're supposed to be, zealous for the things of God, valuing what he values, loving what he loves, caring for what he cares about, seeking what he wants us to seek himself. Brothers and sisters, are you burdened, fraught with worry and fear, lost in addiction? Have you been blindsided, blindsided abandoned, or confused? Seek the presence of God. Would we all be willing to boldly approach the throne of grace? That there in the presence of God, we might receive mercy. We might find grace to help in our time of need. Loved one, God invites you to come. You don't need to go through life on your own. Through Christ, we can draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Jesus himself says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to him, seek his presence, for the nearness of God is our good. David wrote two psalms to commemorate this day, Psalm 105 and Psalm 96. They are sung at the end when the ark arrives in Jerusalem. That's what the Chronicles passage tells us. And we'll close each of our points with a quote from these psalms. And here's what David sings in worship on that day. He sings, Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. So right worship seeks God's presence. And as we get into the first attempt to move the ark now, we learn right away that right worship must also seek God's precepts. This is the second point. Seek God's precepts. They knew what to do and why it was good. They approved of it, but they didn't actually stop and consider how. How we worship matters. Look at verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So at the start, everything goes according to plan. The ark is exactly where they left it for 70 years. And they load it up on a brand new cart and they set out with Ohio in the lead, Uzzah accompanying beside, and the whole crowd goes wild. Everyone celebrates. This is a joyful occasion. To paint the picture for you, because I know it's hard to imagine quantities of people, 30,000 people, uh, the Toyota Soccer Stadium Complex in Frisco has a capacity of 20,000. So think about one and a half times that stadium when it's packed. But in this case, everyone's cheering for the same team. The giant crowd is rowdy and boisterous, celebrating exuberantly. Loud music is pumping. People are singing. Everyone's faces are beaming. There are tears of joy. There's dancing. It's a Disneyland parade on steroids. But then the record scratch moment, everything stops. At the floor of Nacon, the unimaginable happens. The oxen stumble. The ark is jolted, and for a moment, it appears that it just might tumble off the cart unless somebody does something. Fortunately, Uzzah is there, and immediately, instinctively, he reaches out to brace it, and time passes in slow motion. Every eye turns, every mouth agape, and Uzzah does it. The ark is saved. The day is saved. But before a cheer can erupt, before a breath of relief can be sighed, the anger of the Lord is kindled against Uzzah. The burning, red, hot fury of the Lord blazes against him, and God's wrath strikes him dead then and there beside the ark. What in the world? What just happened? God had broken through. And if you were here last week for chapter 5, the God of breakthroughs, the one who can break through for you, isn't always good news. Last week, Pastor Eric talked about Baal Perazim, right? Remember Perez, breakthrough? Well, we have that same Hebrew word here, twice in verse 8. It says, a breakthrough of Yahweh broke through against Uzzah. And so David names the place Perez Uzzah, the breakthrough against Uzzah. Instantaneous judgment. What's David's response? Well, first, he's angry. Now, he's not angry at God, but at the situation. You can hear him shouting, no, no, he's pounding his fists because this isn't what was supposed to happen on this day. But after his initial anger comes fear. Fear, because he knows that this is the hand of God in judgment. This is the same heavy hand that was against the Philistines for seven months and this fear of God changes David's whole mind about this endeavor. He pulls the plug. God is too terrifying, too powerful for David. How could he risk any more? What else could God possibly do? And he aborts the mission, and they go home for three months. Now, as a reader of this text, 
I think we get confused and angry too. We've got questions. I myself have a knee-jerk reaction to this text from the time I read it as a child, even until now. It's where my human rationalization wants to take me and probably you too. We think God should have given this guy a break. Uzzah had good intent. Here is a faithful servant with no bad motives that we know of, only trying to help. And he was protecting the ark. He was loving the things of God. He was caring about the things that God cares about. He was preserving God's honor. And this wasn't premeditative. It was reflexive. He he didn't plan it. It was a split-second, spur-of-the-moment act. He wasn't trying to be the hero. He was just being a faithful servant. And God, we turn to God and we say, God, you should know this more than anyone. Don't you look at the heart? Aren't you compassionate? Aren't you a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? What happened to kindness and patience and forbearance? God, you are acting out of character. Your punishment is too severe. Your wrath too swift, unfair even. This is how we react. We rationalize. We justify. This is what is right in our own eyes. But too bad for us, what is right in our eyes doesn't matter. Because true worship seeks God's precepts. It seeks to understand God and what he wants for his own worship. And the Bible does not mince words here. It says that God struck Uzzah down because of what? His error. His error. Uzzah has committed a great offense. Not just a mistake. He deserves right judgment from the hand of God. You see, in Numbers chapter 4, God had given to Moses a whole detailed procedure for how to pack up and transport everything in the tabernacle. Concluding with this warning in verse 15, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. And if you keep reading numbers, that's not the only issue. There were three clans of the Levites entrusted with the responsibilities, the duties of the tabernacle. The Kohathites were the ones who were in charge of the furnishings. The other two clans took care of other things like curtains and bases and poles. But the Kohathites were in charge of the sacred objects. In fact, their role was so important that God commanded that the Kohathite clan must never be destroyed from among the Levites. Was Uzzah a Kohathite? We actually don't know. We don't know if he or Abinadab were were Kohathites. But keep reading Numbers And the other thing you find is that the other two tribes of Levi were given carts and oxen to pull those carts to transport their components of the tabernacle. But the Bible says, quote, to the Kohathites he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. Uh Uh-oh. You know where they got the idea of the new cart? The ark of God had never been seen on a cart before. Oh, wait, it did. One time, when returning from Philistine territory, just two lone cows pulling it in. Yes, it was the Philistines, their false priests, their diviners, who had conjured up this idea of putting the cart of the ark of God on a cart. And Israel was just going off of what they had seen others do, without considering whether that was God's way. It's just what they saw last. It's what worked. 
that they unwittingly brought in a foreign idea and methodology into the worship of the holy Israelite God. Now, what about us? The church certainly brings secular systems into sanctified spaces, doesn't it? Just because we've seen it work elsewhere. Early on in planting Zoe, Paul Sawasaki and I went to a seminar on church finance and organization. And all these guys who were speaking and attending were these professional businessmen, executives, and managers. They were lay leaders at their church, but they were professionals in every other, uh, you know, in their careers. And most of them were trying to take their experience from work and channel it into the church to help the church function better. But does a church really need business strategies? Do we need to attract people the same way a retailer would? Do we run off the same metrics, the same branding trends, the same employment structures? Do we need a director of social media? Should our music sound more like the world's appeal to people? And look, all of these things we can do out of a good desire. It could come from the purest of motives, the best of wills. We might want to fill the pews. That's a good thing. But how do we do it? If we do it with better refreshments and catchier music and hipper MCs and ear-tickling sermons, then these pews might be filled, but with whom? And for what? They say what you win people with is what you win people to. And if that isn't the gospel... And are you even a church? The church is not a business. The church is not a marketplace. The church is not a rock concert. The church is not a country club. We ought to be scared of God showing up and turning over some tables. Here's the bottom line. Israel forgot how God wanted to be worshipped. And when Uzzah broke the rule, God was right to enact judgment. Even if it seems harsh, to our human ears. God is right to define sin, and God is right to punish sin. End of story. And so was God violating his character by striking down Uzzah with no grace, no mercy, no kindness, no patience? Was that against all of who God is? The answer is no. In that moment, God was being truest to his character because all of God is holy, holy, holy. If God is not holy, he is not worthy of worship. If God sins, he is not greater than any man, and he is not praiseworthy. God deserves worship because he is holy, and he will uphold that holiness forever. So he is right, and we ought to recognize that. David gives up, turns the ark aside, offloads it onto Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, don't confuse him for a Philistine, right? For someone from Gath, like Goliath the Gittite. Obed-Edom is probably from the Israelite city of Gath-Rimon. And Gath-Rimon is a city that is allotted in Joshua 21 to guess which tribe? Levi. And get this, which clan of Levi's got Gath-Rimon? The Kohathites. Does that ring a bell? That's right, Obed-Edom was from the clan that God would always preserve so that someone could carry the ark. The ark of God ends up in the home of a legitimate ark bearer. And this is where things start to go right again. Because while David is off back in Jerusalem, cowering in fear of God's wrath in the future, Obed-Edom's whole household is being tremendously blessed. 
by the hand of God for three whole months. Now look at verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. You see, when David hears about the blessing at Obed-Edom's house, his mind changes back. You see, fear can be paralyzing, and rightfully so. But pair that fear with gladness, with the promise of joy and blessing, that's worship. That's worship. Fear and gladness together in perfect balance. I'll give you an example, right? You see, if there's only fear, only fear, you would worship only in as much as a slave worships his master. There would be no love, no delight, no hope. On the other hand, if there was only joy and gladness and mirth, there would never be any awe or respect. God would just be your fun friend to go grab a drink with. But fear and joy together, that's worship. A healthy fear of God coupled with his promises of joy and blessing and satisfaction in him, that's worship. Psalm 211 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This time David does it right. Chronicles tells us that David consults the words of the law. He does his research. He gathers all the Levites together. He consecrates them, which he's supposed to do. And then he has them carry the ark with its poles. And off they go, and it works. And after six successful steps, they take what you might call a Sabbath rest. They immediately stop, and David offers up a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Things are going according to plan. No one has died. Because this is not David's plan, but they're following God's prescription, God's precepts. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough for us to just want God, but we need to want God his way. It's not enough to want his presence with us. We need to submit to his precepts for us. We can't just enjoy his closeness without surrendering to his authority. But we do that so often, don't we? Even when we pray, we ask, God, be with me while I do my thing. When we really should be praying, God, your will be done. And help me to be faithful and obedient in doing your thing. God's not here to protect us while we do our will, but he is willing to bless us as we seek his. But here's how God wants to be approached and worshipped. He wants humility. He wants a broken and contrite heart. He wants reverence. He wants godly fear. He wants gladness and joy. This is the approach that he desires as we submit ourselves to his sovereign will. And so again, looking to David's closing psalms of praise, he worships at the end of the day with these words. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Right worship seeks God's presence, and it does it the right way by seeking God's precepts. Thirdly and finally, right worship seeks God's pleasure and God's pleasure alone. We exist to please God, even if it invites contempt toward us. 
And this is what we learn from David and Michal, starting in verse 14 through to the end. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, that is his wife, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And because the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. This is a story about a wife who disapproves of what her husband is doing. At first, she sees him dancing. Now, this isn't the common Hebrew word for dancing. There's a lot of dancing in the Bible, and it's all the same word for dancing for music. This isn't it. It's a unique word that describes the action of whirling or twirling around. And verse 16 also mentions leaping, which evokes the imagery of little children skipping or baby animals bounding in the meadows. You know, it actually seems from these words that David's dance wasn't particularly elegant or proficient. In fact, it was probably rather childlike, just twirling and jumping around like a three-year-old you just told could have ice cream for dinner. He was simply overjoyed, expressing it with great enthusiasm, regardless of skill or lack of skill. It was probably pretty cringe. And what was he wearing? A linen ephod. Now, we have to clarify this right here. There's a lot of confusion surrounding this ephod. The Hebrew says it was girded on, which means, which leads to the wrong assumption that it was worn, girded around the waist like a loincloth. And you couple this with Michal's accusation about the young servant girls, and that's where people get the idea that David was dancing in his undies, accidentally flashing people, right? Now let's get that out of the way, because it was a pretty common interpretation for a while. He's not underdressed. He's not nearly naked, Okay. First of all, in Exodus 39, there are two different words for the priestly ephod and the priestly undergarments. It does talk about the underwear there. This is not that word. It's the ephod. Secondly, the priestly ephod was girded, yes, but girded on the chest. In fact, for the high priest, his ephod, the breastplate was affixed over it. So we know it was over the torso. And third, Chronicles says that David was also wearing a linen robe. And he said that all the Levites that were singing and celebrating that day were also wearing that linen robe. So he was as fully clothed as the rest of them were, plus an ephod. The point is, though, actually understanding this, that David was dressed like a priest. He was matchy-matchy with the other almost 900 priests out there. And this ephod in particular 
is a priestly garment. We saw it in 1 Samuel twice. First in chapter 2, where the young Samuel was a boy ministering before the Lord, clothed with a linen ephod, same thing. And then in 2218, when Doeg the Edomite killed 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, that is, the priests at Nob, right? So the only ones wearing linen ephods in 1 Samuel are the priests of God. So David's dressed as a priest. And he's acting like a priest. He offered sacrifices after the six steps. And then at the very end, when they get to Jerusalem, he offers even more offerings. And after that, he blesses the people and gives them provisions, which is technically a priestly function to bless the congregation. What's going on here? If David studied the law so hard to get this day right the second time, shouldn't he know that the sacrifices were reserved for the Levites? Shouldn't God also have Perez again and broken through to strike David dead for unauthorized offering? Well, we'll get back to this because Michal's accusation is also based on David's priestliness. You see, after David blessed everyone and sent them home with their gifts, he returns like a priest to bless his own household. But before he even gets there, his wife Michal comes out to greet him. And look at what she says in verse 20. How the king of Israel honored himself this day, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's bitingly sarcastic. When she says, how you've honored yourself, you know she's saying the exact opposite. You have been so dishonorable today. What sort of king were you out there today? Notice that the passage, every time it mentions her name, almost every time, three times where it says Michal, it says Michal, the daughter of Saul. The daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul, reminding us that she knows what she's talking about. She was born royalty. She was a princess of Israel before David was even a contender for the throne. And when she speaks to David, she reminds him of his royalty and says, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Because today, he didn't appear kingly at all. He lacked the honor, the attire, The decorum, he uncovered himself, not of his clothes resulting in nakedness, but of his royal robes and vestments resulting in humility. And this is what disgusts Michal, that he would lay aside his kingly honor and appear common. And so she speaks of the young women. And again, it's not that he's been sexually immoral toward them. She brings them up to emphasize the degree of his humiliation. The servants, female servants, are the lowliest people out there. They are the subservient to the subservient and in their culture considered the lesser sex. But even to these lowliest ones, King David, you have appeared unbecomingly. You've lost all your honor, even in the eyes of the least. And then she compares him to vulgar, worthless fellows, saying that these guys expose themselves, yes. But again, she's not accusing David of doing exactly that. It's a metaphor for his actions. She's saying just like these morally bankrupt, foolish men find no shame in exposing themselves to others, in the same way you've debased yourself in public. You've laid down your crown. You've reveled with the commoners. You've disrobed yourself of your royalty. You've exposed yourself in the form of a public servant. But David's response says, it was before the Lord. This isn't about my kingship. It isn't about my kingdom. This is about his kingdom. And I am his servant. The eyes that matter most to David are no one's but God's. 
In fact, go back through this passage and see how he did everything before the Lord. Verse 5, David celebrated before the Lord. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord. Verse 16, he was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Verse 17, he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. It was all for God alone. This was true worship. And David says, I worship the God that your father forgot. In verse 21, he says, The Lord chose me above your father Saul and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And here he is actually addressing the priest question. Because notice that he says, not king, but appointed prince over Israel. This word actually means ruler. And he says that because this word can mean both king and priest, because priests are the rulers over the house of God. David says he is the ruler over God's people, both politically as a king and apparently spiritually as a priest. He is God's appointed spiritual leader over his people. And that's it. You see, God did not strike David down today because somehow, by God's design, he has been allowed to perform priestly duties. Even though David is not a Levite, right? He's from the tribe of Judah. But when you remember that David was the forerunner to the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself, who also was not from Levi, he was from David, he was from Judah. But it all starts to make sense because Jesus becomes the great high priest, the permanent once and for all mediator between God and man. And that idea begins here in First Samuel, 2 Samuel 6 with David inaugurating God's royal priesthood. David ends by saying that he will become lower still, even more contemptible, even more abased. The Lord will increase and David will decrease. And Dale Ralph Davis clarifies for us when he says, David's action this day was not performance for people, but worship for Yahweh. David does not see himself so much as Israel's king, but as Yahweh's servant. And humility is appropriate for servants. For David, humility is dignity. End quote. And all who worship God will honor this. Those young female servants that Michal was so worried about, they know what it's about. Worship recognizes worship. If these young women honor God, they will see David rightly, and God will be glorified. And in the end, Michal misses out on blessing. Instead, she trades it in for shame. The chapter ends that she is childless until death. It could be that God closed her womb in judgment, or it could simply mean that David withheld himself from her the rest of her life. Either way, the words of God from 1 Samuel 2 prove true, that those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This is the last we hear of Michal. What a tragic end for someone who was literally one step away from God's blessing. David was on his way to bless her, and she chose instead to revile the worship of God. And she received shame. But the lesson here, I believe, is that we're meant to seek God's pleasure, even if the world regards our exuberance as foolish. And it's true. Religious zeal is often regarded as folly by the world, right? They wonder why we spend our Sundays at church instead of sleeping or watching TV. They wonder why we believe in this ancient book and are obsessed with a dead guy. 
They wonder why we give so much of our money away in this society, in this economy right now. They scorn us for insisting on meeting in person during a pandemic. It's folly to them. Charles Spurgeon acknowledges our folly before the world when he says this. They will sneer at you as a piece of antiquity. Some will despise you for your simplicity and insinuate that you are devoid of culture and science, repeating disproven doctrines only believed in by the illiterate. But God's truth is more profound than all the speculations of men. See, it doesn't matter what people think of us when what we worship is true. So let's consider our own worship. Do we seek God's pleasure regardless of the optics? And you know, honestly, today, I think we might struggle less with what outsiders think of our worship and worry more about what fellow Christians think of our worship. You see how backwards that is? That our concern for our appearances before our own family in Christ is what holds us back from singing loudly, from expressing emotion, from clapping. We should be the most understanding of those around us as we come together to do things before the Lord. Now, if I could speak from my own heart, for a long time, my personal conviction has been that the utmost of our emotions should be reserved for spiritual things, should be expressed before the Lord. What I mean is our greatest expression of joy should be before God and because of God. The hardest we ever weep should be over our sin. Even our greatest anger should be over the things that displease God. The loudest we ever sing, our noisiest cheers, our most enthusiastic applause should all be before the Lord. But in reality, and in my own life, despite this belief, things have been wrongly ordered. The loudest we've sung is at concerts, screaming our lungs out to secular songs. The loudest we've cheered and clapped has been at sporting events for our team. Some of us are so rigid in worship at church, but we are so capable of being so outgoing elsewhere. One 19th century minister condemns us all when he says, There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Let's consider God's pleasure. Let's consider how we do things before the Lord. As a worship leader, I receive a lot of comments and encouragements. The one I hear the most, especially more recently, is people commenting on how joyful I am when I'm singing. People say, I love that you're so happy when you're leading. And sometimes I think, that's great. What about you? I'd love to see you be joyful too. Aren't we doing the same thing? Aren't we worshiping the same God? Aren't we saved in the same way? And yes, some of you are really, really encouraging. When I'm leading and I look out and I see you, I'm really encouraged and blessed to see you worshiping. And you know, some of y'all's parents, especially, when they're in town, when they're visiting Dallas, are the most enthusiastic worshipers ever, okay? And I don't mean just one or two of you. A lot of you, your parents, when they come into town, they really are into musical worship for some reason, expressing their joy in song. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, I don't think it's something because of, the, I don't think it's because of their age. I don't think it's because they're from a particular generation. What I think it is, and what they have in common, is that their children are here. Do you get what I'm saying? 
It's because something about these parents who love to worship God and love doing things before the Lord have helped shape their kids, you guys, into people who love God and love his word and so have ended up here at Zoe. And I hope that your parents' passion and zeal would flow down to this generation and to the next. In fact, we should think about this. What do we model for our own kids in worship? We have family worship once a quarter. Do we show that our offering to God is a sacrifice of praise? Do our kids understand why we sing? Does it even seem to them like a good thing or just something that you're supposed to do when you're in church? Do we model to them that truth and doctrinal correctness is not supposed to lead to dampened enthusiasm and subdued joy? Those who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, ought to be the most exuberant worshipers. Am I right? Because God has done it. And for a final time, looking to David's psalms penned for this occasion, David proclaims to the people these words of Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Second Samuel 6 is a lesson in true worship. The pitfalls of getting it wrong and the blessings of getting it right. It starts with seeking and valuing the presence of God with us. We need him and we must seek him together. And that means seeking and pursuing also his precepts to worship him in the way that he is meant to be worshipped with humble and contrite hearts. And it also means seeking his pleasure and his pleasure only. Thinking only about what he thinks of us and not anyone else. To please him alone. But as we close, the most important thing for us if we want to get worship right, is that we need Jesus. We need Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of these three things. If we truly seek them, we find them all in Christ. First, Jesus Christ is the presence of God with us. We don't have the ark anymore. But Jesus came to the earth as Emmanuel, God with us. And though he is no longer here today in the flesh, he has sent his spirit, the spirit of Christ, to be with us always, to indwell us. His presence is already with us, as I mentioned earlier, because of Christ. Second, Jesus fulfilled all of God's precepts perfectly because all of us, like Uzzah, should rightly be visited by the heavy hand of God's wrath. For the wages of our sin, death. But Jesus fulfilled the law of God. He lived the life of pure holiness because he is God, but he still went to a cross to die. Why? To die our death that we deserved on our behalf. Our sins were nailed there on the cross with him. And when Romans 3.25 calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins, that's a big word. But do you know what the Greek word actually is there? Mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat for our sins. You remember the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that was covered in shed blood to atone for the sins of the people. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. The mercy seat for our sins, covered in blood for us. 
And thirdly, Jesus did all this for God's good pleasure. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. And what he did, like David, his royal predecessor, was this. Jesus also set aside his kingly crown. He also stripped off his royal vestments, his kingly honor, and took on the form of a servant. He became a man, lowly. He came to die for the sins of the world. And God the Father honors this. Twice he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus came to the earth, lived, died, was resurrected, ascended, all for our redemption and salvation, all accomplishing the will of the Father for his good pleasure. We'll close here. Brothers and sisters, today is an invitation to correct our worship, okay? The way it is done is to seek the Lord in faith. Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who, what? Seek him. Seek the Lord, turn to Christ in faith, trust fully in him, because he is the answer as we seek God's presence, his precepts, and his pleasure. It is all provided and accomplished for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to stand in awe of you. And if we don't feel that in our hearts and in our soul right now, we pray that you would stir us up. Do that in us, Lord. Cause us to stand in awe of you. Cause us to marvel and wonder at your holiness, at your greatness, at the splendor of your majesty. And draw out from our hearts this moment songs of praise and worship to you. We pray, Lord, that this would be a turning point for all of us in whatever way you are calling us and changing us. Turn our hearts to you, that you may be rightly seated on the throne of our hearts as we worship you, and that we might look and behold you on the throne in heaven where you are, Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty. We praise your name, and we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has accomplished all these things for us, for your good pleasure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.